0: this is the frontier podcast powered by gun.io the engineer's choice for engineering talent if you like what you hear rate review and subscribe and follow us on twitter at the frontier pod if you're shopping online for pretty much anything there's a very good chance the pages you're looking at are being dynamically generated based on a b testing and automation powered by redpoint George Corrigato is the firm's co-founder and CTO. And in this episode, George sits down with Ledge to discuss how his global engineering organization created industry-leading decision engine performance of less than 50 milliseconds per decision and scales it using .NET Core and containers to more than 30 million real-time decisions per day. Don't miss George's powerful lessons learned going from small company technical founder to global CTO.
1: George, thanks for joining us today. Really cool to have you.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you. Very excited to be here. sounds uh, sounds like a, a fun fun time.
1: Awesome. Can you please tell the uh, listeners uh, maybe two three minutes about you your your history and and your work now?
0: Sure, happy to. Um. So, so I um, I run a, a team of about 48 developers that uh, that span the UK um, Boston. Boulder, and Manila, and, and we collectively work on four different products that are uh, uh, very interesting products that all come together to deliver a customer engagement hub. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on what that is, a customer engagement hub is a, a set of technology that allow you to collect Data basically everything that's knowable about a customer, uh, pull it all together into a real time uh, availability hub, uh, something that's now called the CDP or a customer data platform. That's kind of the, the most recent buzz term for it, but. Um, but it's really a new species of data environment. It's really not what you might think of as an old data warehouse. It's it's really focused on real-time availability of data. Then uh, we've got machine learning uh, and AI that we – proprietary stuff that we've built that we then obviously um, apply to the data to develop insights. And then we've got an orchestration layer that sits on top of that that allows uh, marketers uh, from enterprise organizations to then uh, deliver uh, messaging and customer experience from any touch point across the organization. And it does that because we interconnect uh, uh, via our SDK to all of those typical touch points, things like, uh, call centers and websites and you know uh, mobile apps and email whatever it may be we interconnect to those uh, kind of last mile providers, and our technology sits in the middle, and basically gives uh, the, the the folks in the enterprise one point of operational control for all that messaging and experience management, and one point of data control, and uh, and so yeah, so that's what we focus on. That's so that's uh, what we do. We we uh, use a gamut of technologies, um, uh, everything from uh, .NET net core all the way to um, Java C++ uh, lots of uh, J- uh, JSON work that we're doing with all those different interchange interfaces and exchanges of um, of data uh, across all those systems so lots of lots of fun stuff and th- now we're also moving all of that technology more um uh, more directly into the cloud environments, particularly Azure, but we we work both in Azure and AWS, and uh, and and leveraging more and more of, of the the past te- PaaS technologies that are available in things like Azure. So we're making the technology which was really uh, just pure software in the traditional sense of it, you know, downloadable, installable software uh, is becoming more and more like a first class cloud citizen now. So we're doing a lot of that uh, that conversion uh, to those type of microservices that we would deploy in the cloud.
1: So is the solution old enough that you would have, um, you know, Developed, I guess, pre-cloud, right? You know, pre um, microservice type of, of thinking, and now you have to rearchitect that.
0: Well, fortunately, not a lot of rearchitecting. Some parts, yes. Uh, so we've, so some uh, some of our technology is close to 15 years old. And, uh, and so yeah, so it started back, uh, you know, C++ data management engines and, and everything. And, and, uh, and frankly, we still outperform the likes of Informatica and every and lots of the big, uh, the, the bigger companies out there. So, so, um, so the technology is still very viable. But uh, but obviously the, the world now is really mostly cloud oriented. So in some cases, yes, we are having to uh, rebuild some of the execution engines that are inside of the data, the, the data application. Um, but interestingly, we, uh, the .NET side of it has been much easier to move into the cloud. What we've done is is moved all of the .NET code into .NET Core, which then allows us to then run in Linux and Linux containers, which has allowed us to then really very rapidly move everything now into, um, you know, the the. The kind of self, uh, the auto-expanding environments that uh, clients are are expecting, and and really you can't tell um, that the uh, the technology used to be really more traditional software. It just works just as you would expect any kind of uh, SaaS, auto-scaling, microservices-oriented uh, technology would now. So so I think. You know, I think that's partly smart architecting and engineering early on, uh, part luck because you know uh, uh, .NET has you know, and .NET Core have evolved the way they have. Uh, but we're still, you know, certainly paying off some of the debt that the uh, C plus uh, plus gave us. But um, you know, but uh, it's it's all good. You know, it's it's uh, it's stuff that we love to do.
1: Yeah, I don't. Hear as many people talking as I would expect about the, the .NET Core in, in the Linux uh, world, and yet I know that that's huge, and there's a lot of development there. Maybe talk a little bit more about that experience, because I, I think there's still a little bit of the overhang on you know, in the open source world that you know, sort of Microsoft used to be evil, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and yet, yet now you know they're they're doing a, a tremendous service there, and, and a lot of development around. Linux. So, you know, what's that, what's that been like and how could people explore that?
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that I, I've always been uh, fascinated by in technology is how people ascribe uh, personalities to, to, you know, the, the evil Microsoft or the, you know, the cool Apple or whatever, you know, and, and I, I've never, understood that, frankly. I mean, to me, technology is a tool and every technology has trade-offs. It's just that simple. And and if you want something to be successful, it's all about figuring out what's the best fit, what trade-offs fit your circumstances, and then how do you uh, do and deliver that solution as quickly as possible, right? So, uh, So I've never been Microsoft phobic, but at the same time, I've always been very open to Every type of technology that's out there that that's useful right so um, the dot net core has been frankly a real blessing for us because if you Work with containers much. You know that the Linux containers are, are much more um, uh, much more agile in, in the things they can do than the than the Windows containers. So, what the .NET Core has allowed us to do is to uh, very quickly move a lot of code that has to work in a very um, Microservices kind of way, a lot of our real-time decision engines um, uh, uh, that that really require that kind of auto-scaling capability uh, has allowed us to take advantage of that because of its compatibility with with Linux now, and um, and so for, for an example of that is in our in our orchestration layer we have. Uh, are real-time decision engines that can either be driven by discrete uh, rules or by machine learning. And what the uh, .NET Core has allowed us to do is take real advantage of, you know, large numbers of containers and you know and the whole you know the whole idea of containers which allows them to replicate and uh and and diminish as necessary um you know that's a very important thing when suddenly you're in the holidays and you get a big rush at a website and it's demanding lots of decisions um uh, to to keep up with uh, with uh with the demand so um to us has been a, a real blessing. And like I said, I don't think, you know, we've used .NET uh, and we started building some of the applications we built on .NET, frankly, because of the speed of development, you know, um, you know, Java is very useful in, in a lot of different cases, but frankly, the, the applications that we could build in .NET in the time frame at the level of efficiency that we could build them uh, just didn't compare, right? So we were able to scale up these applications much more quickly in .NET than we would be able to in other languages, and um, and and so now you know, we have the, the good fortune of having uh, .NET Core that allows us to really expand it across lots of different environments.
1: Are you using Docker, Kubernetes? What is the actual um, technology stack there? Yeah, consumer?
0: we we actually use both of those, uh, uh, mostly Kubernetes now since that, since we are so much in the Azure environment, uh, we use Kubernetes uh, a great deal and, and it just works like a charm in the performance. We're getting out of it is really staggering most most of our competition the decision engines that have to uh, support you know websites or or real-time decisions from call centers or mobile apps or whatever it may be uh, frankly none of them can break 200 milliseconds per decision and and we've got clients that that are, uh, are delivering, uh, millions, uh, 30 million decisions a day, uh, all at, at less than 50 milliseconds at the 95th percentile. And, and so that's just, you know, in the, in the world that we live in, that's really staggering performance. And that's including multiple hops in a, in a single decision. So for example, um, one of our clients, uh, when, when they request a decision, they will have a stop for other feeds of data for pricing optimization at one API for uh, uh, product recommendations from another API that's you know driven by models whatever we'll have three or four stops that we have to do we collect all of that then process it through our real time decisions and send it back and typically we're in single digit milliseconds uh, but you know in general it's it's really a uh, a a sub 50 millisecond threshold that we're, uh, we're looking to beat. And, um, and we do that. And, and so we we get that performance uh, from the combination of our code is sitting inside of of those, uh, those containers. Uh, So it's really worked out really well for us.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic performance metric. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah you don't hear that a lot so yeah, well, yeah. Well no, it's, it's
0: it's thank you and it's great our clients love it and and it's really put us in a great position uh in the whole real time decision space and in all of you know the ab uh testing that we do with websites you know we can work both in the uh uh server side or client side and you know just lots of flexibility around
1: that do you have a serverless use case that you are exploring anywhere on that because it seems well, like you could you could potentially go that direction yeah
0: and and we're definitely looking at it. Um, we We don't have currently, we don't really have a use case that requires it but where we're heading with the software uh certainly that is a direction that we're we're heading towards
1: sort of like uh, a stateless and, model of decision making yeah yeah
0: yeah absolutely because um one of the things that we're exploring is is you know we the the history of a lot of what we do is you know is based in workflow one way or another right so it's all about um you know state and state changes and uh and so, so as we move into um, a world where decisions. Uh, both inbound and outbound decisions, and decisions across an enterprise, whether they're being internally done or ex- externally uh, managed, where all of that has to run at you know this type of of uh, speed, uh, you know the less overhead we've got, the better, right? So so certainly we're looking at how to migrate the technology that way, and 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 and. And you know, there's there's the current landscape, which is really a an extension of that traditional workflow, where you mentally think of you know the the little bot, you know the the visio diagram and the arrows and the go button, to a place where you've got machine learning uh, running instantaneous decisions, and 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 then working in that type of serverless. Uh, headless type of environment where uh, decisions are running at a very or in a very organic way across the enterprise Uh, that's very much where the technology's headed we're just not quite there yet
1: very interesting so you you kind of have the experience of being a technical founder all the way up now to you know sort of global CTO 50 engineers all over the world working for you, I wonder—you know—two or three lessons for people who, you know, aspire to such things. You know, what do you wish you knew then that you know now, and um, you know, like just tips for you know somebody who aspires to to go from founder to global CTO?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, um, the interesting part of all of this is this was never the plan. So I, I'd say probably one of the big lessons is, you know, be careful how hard you stick to your plan because you might miss out on some great opportunities. Cause I, um, you know, I, I, my educational background is all in applied mathematics. I expected to be a professor and, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, but, uh, but you know, life had other uh, ideas for me. And so the idea of being able to, you know, kind of take what you have and not be afraid of new challenges, I think, is really one important lesson there because, you know, you know, at one point uh, already far removed from being a professor. I was working at Accenture, and you know that was an unlikely place for a math professor to end up. But there I was, working uh, with clients and and you know you know global one hundred clients and and solving a lot of business problems and everything else. And and it it seems like an unlikely place to be. But one of the things that I learned is that if you can think. And problem solve, you can pretty much move that into any space you want, right? And so uh, that was what I really depended on was that ability to problem solve. And so that took me to a place like Accenture, where I got unbelievable business training. You know, some the things you can't learn at a, at a business school. You you know, it's it's very different being in that place. And it was interesting because I I was there and I was considered an expert in what I did at the time. And then all of a sudden I get the bug to go do a startup in the Philippines with call centers. And I knew nothing about call centers, nothing about the Philippines or, or, or what I was really even doing out there. And I remember there were a lot of nights when I was at nights because, you know, you work US hours right so you work overnight and and I remember sitting there thinking a lot of times what was I doing? Why did I do this? Why did I, you know, take this? I was, you know, I had a cushy job. I was an expert at what I did. I was getting paid a lot of money. What am I doing here at three in the morning at a call center in the Philippines? You know, and um, but the but the truth is, it was a tremendous learning uh, experience for me, and I wouldn't change a thing of it now because that experience really prepared me for doing what i'm doing now which was you know you know i'm glad that i'm not having the first board meeting that i ever had at this job right i had then right and and so a lot of those experiences that uh, you know you might think were you know kind of off to to the left or to the right of what you planned there's always a lesson in it you know and there's always a learning that you can take away from it and so um you know i didn't expect to be here i i certainly aspired you know in the back of my mind you know that would be great but here we are and uh and, w- and we're doing phenomenally well and and what's what's really interesting uh, i guess a second lesson of that is really if you believe uh in um direction and a vision then stick to it because one of the things that um We've never been a conventional company or a a, a company that really listens to conventional wisdom, right? When we entered uh, the space we're in, which is really marketing technology or MarTech or whatever, uh, we always were very uh, data obsessed. And while everybody else was coming up with the next marketing widget or the next ad tech technology or DMP or whatever, we were always thinking, man, if you don't get the data right, nothing else works correctly. Well, the market has finally caught up to us. Right. And, and we are like the hottest thing going right now in terms of Martech, because we organically really focused on data and we organically developed our own machine learning. And and for a lot of years, it was really frustrating with the analysts, uh, which are just the bane of my existence, but nonetheless, you know, you got to deal with them and, and, you know, and, and, and they would say, well, you're not really a marketing company. You're really more of a data company company. And then when you go talk to them about the data, well, you're not really a data company, you're really more of a marketing company. And so you could never please them, right? But we knew the vision was right, because we see the results, we see what happens when you fix the data, get it right, the marketing works, right? So, so it was a really important lesson for us, and for me, to really stick to your vision, right? Uh, you may be ahead of the market a bit, but eventually, if it's right, it, people come around, you know, so that's, that was a real important lesson for me as well. And I, I don't know if I can come up with a third one. Maybe, maybe I can while we chat here, but those, those are two big ones for me.
1: It's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. it was great, great insights. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll go with the, uh, I'll go with the short, easy, easy one at the end there. It, <laughs> we always, what we always ask is uh, you know, we're, we're in the business of evaluating and vetting and hiring, you know, just like the best software engineers in the world. Right. And, uh, you know, we have a, a pretty rigorous system to do that. I, I like to ask everybody I talk to, you know, what are your heuristics for knowing when you're talking to and, and about to hire or wanting to hire, you know, a super senior software engineer, a plus, you know, elite sort of badass, you know, who, who is that? Like, how do you measure that? And, you know, just, um, Help the listeners, you know, sort of understand, because everybody wants to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great question, and and I think one of the reasons we've got so many of those really hot uh, engineers is because one of the things is we're real flexible, right? In the sense of, you know one of the things about engineers is that they've all got personalities and, you know, and, and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of interesting sometimes, but, but we kind of, you know, look for the value in the people and what they bring. And if they're a bit eccentric, that's fine with us. Uh, but we, what we don't do and what we, what we really, uh, don't put up with is, being slack, you know, you know, everybody's got to be an A plus personality, right? I mean, they've got to be obsessed with what they're doing. They've got to be really, um, self-directed we like to see people who have started up other companies and maybe they didn't you know the, the startup didn't work out but people that can really initiate something that you can say you know what we used to say at Accenture fire and forget right you can discuss a vision for somebody and next day they've got a prototype that's what we look for it's people that can iterate very quickly that can they, they and, and interestingly they have to be good at communicating because it's not enough that you can just code up, you know, anything in the world. You've got to be able to work in a team. And so that ability to communicate and turn that communication into something tangible quickly is, is a really important asset for us, right? Or it's a really important quality for us that we look for. So we look for people that have built stuff uh, in their prior, prior lives that have been part of a really productive teams and we also look for people that are not necessarily just developers in the sense that they've got to know uh, they've got to have some expertise in the uh, in the in this sp- in that particular space and in industry right so uh, so when we hire developers we want you know like if we're gonna hire somebody to code up machine learning code Well, they need to know machine learning inside and out in addition to coding, right? When we hire folks to develop stuff for our orchestration, we want people who actually know a lot about workflow and how it works in addition to being able to code in five different languages. So, you know, they have to have expertise in the topic uh, as well as the code, right? Coding is like the price of entry and the expertise in that particular topic is what really makes them effective for us.
1: Speaking our language, thank you. Couldn't have it <laughs> better myself. George, this is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Really, thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other
1: engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.